It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. last time I had the pleasure of hanging out with Tony was back in November of 2019, which feels like years ago at this point. We were both speaking at the Remedy Food event at the Skamania Lodge in Stevenson, Washington, and had the great pleasure, Tony, of not only sharing the stage with you and uh, watching your beautiful presentation, but also emceeing the 24-karat culinary cooking competition, which you... First of all, props, Tony. Like you did such an amazing job. It was my first time actually emceeing. I felt more like a referee, honestly, but I just remember how wonderful your food was and how composed you were under pressure. Like props to you under all of that pressure and all those eyeballs on you. You really pulled out some incredible recipes that afternoon. I really loved that competition and I had never done anything like that and If anyone knows Chef AJ, it was pretty intimidating because her personality is so much different than mine. And so she was getting the crowd fired up and had a very just a big personality while I'm really introverted. And so while you say I was composed, mostly I was just shy and nervous, but it ended up being really fun and exciting. And as my dad always says, you don't have to be the loudest talker in the room to win. So. We ended up winning that competition and everyone had a good time. Well, it seems like, again, November feels, at least to me, like it was so incredibly long ago. And, you know, since then, obviously, we have been in a global situation, not just in the US, of so much uncertainty and economic instability and people trying to save money and feed their families and do the best they can. And, you know, Tony, my first introduction to you, and I'm sure Whitney feels the same, was really getting introduced to your work about how to eat plant-based and eat healthy and thrive, but also saving money and doing it on a budget. And I'm curious in this time period, since we saw one another, how your work in the world and really teaching people and instructing them on how to save money while eating plant-based has there just been a lot more attention on your work given the fact that you know we're all in this massive period of economic uncertainty and what's been showing up for you what kind of comments and emails have you been getting and what kind of attention has your work been getting throughout this period specifically it's been a really interesting time and my year like many people who are listening has just been thrown for a loop I was getting ready to go on the second half of my book tour for my book, Plant Based on a Budget. Then COVID happened and I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to sell books? How am I going to reach people? I was doing a media tour and that's how I rely on people finding Plant Based on a Budget. And with that not happening, we had to totally go into a new game plan and I did virtual news segments from my kitchen. And it was such a funky time. The news stations were also having the same learning curve where I couldn't see them. One time some TV anchor or TV station turned around their computer monitor to look at a TV so that I could watch them and talk to them through the computer monitor and the TV. It was just a funky time. 
then I got access to a lot of people that I wouldn't have heard from otherwise. And people were stressing out. They had just gotten laid off and wanted to feed their family healthy food, but were now in a position of not having any money and not having their children being fed breakfast and lunch through school. So I focused a lot on getting families to eat healthy together and also on basic cooking. I learned through hearing from a lot of people that they had been relying on fast food and more convenience foods like frozen or canned. And this was their first time exploring rice and beans and lentils. And they were asking simple questions like, how do I cook rice? And it sounds funny to people who have been cooking for a long time, but the truth is that the majority of people are not exposed to basic cooking skills until much later in life, if at all. So that's where I've been focusing my time. I've done a lot of Instagram Live and a lot of virtual events, and I'm trying to navigate this as best as anyone else. It's such an interesting time, and I do feel for people who are in financial hardship right now because it's stressful to want to stay healthy, but then financial stress is a whole different beast. What are some of the things that you start people with? You mentioned cooking rice or cooking beans and things like that. When you get you know emails and DMs from people, what's, I guess, a ground zero for them? Is it learning to cook grains, saute veggies? I mean, I'm asking you because I'm trying to get back into that beginner's mindset as well, right? Where as you mentioned, I think for the three of us, Whitney, Tony, myself, you know, we've all been cooking for ourselves and so passionate about the culinary arts and nutrition for so long. But that beginner's mindset, Tony, getting back to that for a second, what's ground zero for most people to teach them? I mean, is it literally boiling water? Is it chopping vegetables, learning how to use a chef's knife for the first time? What does that look like? It's learning how to grocery shop first and learning what ingredients pair with other ingredients, what is going to be the most nutrient dense for the smallest amount of money, and really stocking your pantry and your refrigerator with healthy and expensive foods. That's the hardest part. And so when I originally started plant-based on a budget way back when, I had all these recipes on the website, but they weren't cohesive and they weren't really helpful to people who only had $50 or $40 to spend on a week's worth of food because they would try to make two recipes that didn't really pair well together. And so they had to buy all these ingredients. And even though they were inexpensive, it still didn't stretch. Two meals wouldn't stretch for the whole seven days. And so I took the feedback I was receiving and created a meal plan that had a printable grocery shopping list and photos and a step-by-step of how to cook the rice, how to cook the beans from scratch, and made it very simple based on the feedback I was receiving because it is so challenging to not only transition away from foods that you may have once loved, but then to have no experience. I remember going plant-based myself. I had never had kale. I had never even heard of quinoa. I thought that black beans and brown rice were for fancy people. It seemed so foreign to me. I'd never heard of butternut squash. And it's just an overwhelming, or it can be an overwhelming process without that guidance. And it started 
with learning ingredients. This is such an interesting thing because the times are changing so much. And from what I'm hearing, Tony, it's so insightful to learn more about what other people are going through. And I think that's one of the ongoing lessons that we have from COVID is that we get, if we're open to it and if we're paying attention, we can really see how many people around the world have completely different experiences from us. And whether that's where we live, how we were raised, our education. And I think money is always such an interesting subject matter and is food. And it's interesting too, because I did a a similar book project back in 2014 when I did my ebook, Healthy Organic, Vegan on a Budget. And just studying the food system and learning different ways to save money was so interesting. And then just kind of getting that peek into that world of the facts around how some people just don't have access in the way that I have had access to food. And that can be literal access. Like it really depends on where you live in the world and how much money you're making or how much money your family make. And then when you put in this situation of COVID and how people's jobs are compromised or health is compromised and it adds in this whole new level of stress that was already there. I almost feel like you could write a whole book on like plant-based on a budget during uncertain times, Tony. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't done anything like that yet, I think it's super interesting, even if it's just like a, a PDF or something, because I'm sure you're learning so much about how to support people during tough times. Have people brought this up to you? Like, what their experience has been and does it seem like people are interacting with you and sharing about their hardships in a new way? Are they being vulnerable around it or does it feel like people are kind of scared to talk about that subject of what they are, where they're at financially? Because I feel like there's a lot of that happening too. It, it almost feels like there's shame involved with money. Like I don't want to tell people how bad things are actually are for me. But the trick is when you don't talk about it, then you don't really get the opportunity for somebody to support you with it, you know? It is tough and it is sometimes you feel within yourself a little bit of shame or embarrassment with being on a tight budget. And I talk about this in Plan Based on a Budget, my book, and I something that really, really, really sticks out to me is what my dad used to tell me when he was totally embarrassing me, both my parents were totally embarrassing me at the grocery store with coupons and we were holding up the line and my mom had this accordion folder and she'd like dig through it and be like, oh, oh, I got a coupon for that. I have a coupon for that. And it was such an embarrassing thing as a kid. And I remember bringing it up. I'm like, oh my gosh, so can you stop? And my dad told me, those people behind us don't pay our bills, so they can wait. Uh, <laughs> it's always stuck with me that what we carry is mostly within ourselves. The people behind you probably don't even care. They're probably on their phone. They're probably thinking about how tough their day at work was. And so if we can just let that self-shame go, it really makes the process and the progress much easier. And I've seen through COVID, a few different waves of feelings happened. First, it was survival mode. People were not engaging with my content at all because they were so busy trying to make sure they had supplies at home and they were so uncertain about 
their jobs and everything else that was going to happen in their lives. But then as people felt more secure in their homes, they started to learn how to cook their foods. I remember we pitched like a TV segment about, so you stocked up on beans and now you have 40 cans you don't know what to do with. (laughs) And so that's where I came in probably a couple months into COVID, uh, trying to teach people how to use these pantry staples that they purchased in bulk, like brown rice and canned beans and things like that. So there's something that you said earlier, and it reminds me that as vegans, especially when you first start and you're really fired up and passionate, you want everyone to make this lifestyle change with you, and you're not sure why people aren't doing it as hastily as you feel it should be done. Right. And I hear it all the time. People say, oh, they're just excuses. But sometimes people have really valid concerns and obstacles to overcome. And I think that just sharing some compassion and some grace goes a long way. And I understand feeling the desire to make change immediately. But I try to think of the long game. I try to think of setting up yourself for success forever, not just in the immediate time. That helps me as an activist, but also as a vegan myself. Yeah, for sure. And it is interesting for those of us who have been plant-based for a long time. I mean, I certainly felt some insecurity when COVID first started developing in the United States. And there was so much panic around food. Going to the grocery store just felt so stressful. Actually, just thinking about it right now, I I kind of had forgotten about this feeling. But I remember for the first couple months, like March and April, I really dreaded going to the grocery store. And part of that was because there was so much confusion around, like, was it even safe to leave your home? And like, are you putting yourself at risk there? But remember like what that was like. I don't know if this is how much things have changed where you are in Northern California, Tony, but in Los Angeles, it was nuts for at least a month or so. Every time you would try to go to the grocery store, there was this chance that you'd be waiting in line for like half an hour or more. And then you go in there and then the food was so scarce And some stores, there was like plenty of plant-based food, (laughs) which was, there was like all these memes going around about how the vegans were so lucky because like nobody wanted our food. But that wasn't always the case in LA, like being a pretty open-minded city with food and health-focused city. There certainly are a lot of vegans here that would go and buy these things. And so you go to the grocery store and could barely find tofu anymore. Like the basics were actually harder to find at times than some of the more processed foods. So it was hard to find beans and rice or flour at certain points. And for me, that stress of going to the store and like, I remember one time going into Whole Foods and I went first thing in the morning and I got into the store. It was the longest line I've ever seen in a grocery store in my life. And it was at like, whenever they open, I don't know if they open at like seven something, 7.30 maybe. It was super early and they were just the parking lot was overflowing. There was barely anything on the shelves. And I'm walking around feeling like I'm in some movie. And then my main point is that even though I've been plant-based for so long, 
I was like forgetting like what foods I should eat. Like I was just like so overwhelmed. And so my heart goes out to anyone who is newer to the plant-based way of eating during a time like that where you go to the grocery store and you can barely even think straight because you're feeling so stressed and scared and everyone around you is stressed and scared. And then if you're trying to save money, I found a lot of that requires planning, you know, and then there were certain stores that changed their policies and they like wouldn't do certain things because they were stressed out. I don't know if that's changed with couponing, but either I don't know if they would like not take coupons, but like it even felt weird at times to ask for discounts at certain places or to like use a coupon code you had online because my heart would feel bad for the businesses there that are also trying to survive. And so it's a long-winded way of saying that this whole system of the way that we eat, which is so important for our survival, became incredibly challenging this year for everybody, no matter where they're at financially or dietarily, you know? Definitely. I went to the grocery store probably the first week things were getting to be a little bit more hectic in Sacramento, and I was able to get a lot of the necessities. And I didn't know what was about to happen yet. The grocery stores were still kind of calm. But my mother-in-law is, she is very much a worrier. (laughs) She loves to worry. And she called me. She was like, you need to go get hand sanitizer. You need cans of beans. You need it for months. Get water. Get all this. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'll go get some beans and I'll go get one hand sanitizer. And then Maybe a week later, everything was gone everywhere. I went back to the same store. The line was out the door, but it wrapped. It was like one of those big warehouse stores too. It's called Winco. It's here in Sacramento. Yeah, here in Sacramento. And it's a big giant warehouse grocery store. And the line went all the way around the inside and then out of the door to the outside. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I walked in and walked right back out because at the same time, I was worried about COVID. I was hearing how it could be fatal and I didn't want to infect my family. And so that there's that stress. And uh, it was just, I hadn't been going to counseling and I called up my counselor and I was just like, this is so much. I don't know what's happening with my job. I don't know what's happening with food. I don't know if I should be scared at my house. And it all worked out for me. And I'm really grateful for that. But I also was carrying what could happen for my friends who rely on bars to hire their band or where I swing dance, the venue shutting down completely and not being able to survive the next few months. So I was also scared for my friends. And it was just a lot. Then plus, you can't find food. Right, which is like the ultimate fear. (laughs) Just thinking about it, because I used to love going to the grocery store. And fortunately, The last couple months, it feels like things are shifting where it's easier. It's rare that there's a line to get into a grocery store these days, which I'm so grateful for. But still, you go in there and they limit how many people are in the store, which is nice. And they have the hand sanitizers. And there's like some stores have like the arrows on the floor about what path you're supposed to walk. And it's like kind of sad to me what used to bring me so much joy and just be this easy thing, you know, popping into a grocery store real quick to grab something was not something that I was able to do for a while. And it just completely shifted my relationship with food. And I think 
it's also kind of a good thing for us to experience because not everybody has the privilege of having a good experience around food. You know, for some, it's it's literally a matter of like life or death and they're just eating to get by. It's not a matter of like, ooh, I can go into the store and my biggest challenge is figuring out what plant-based meat I'm going to have today. You know, <laughs> like I think it's really opened my eyes to a lot of the struggles that people have around making decisions or getting access to things. Yes. I've had a weird relationship with food my whole life and it's not weird in a way that I completely understand, but I, th- I think most of it comes down to I had never really been brought up to understand that the food that I was consuming was for more than taste. And so that meant I didn't even notice we didn't have a lot of grocery store options around me all the time, especially when I lived in a smaller town in near Sacramento. It's called Woodland. Near us, we didn't have a lot of grocery stores, but because we ate fast food a lot and because we relied on Hamburger Helper, it didn't even register to me until I was much older. And I think that that's what a lot of people experience is not having that access to fresh food and not even knowing about it until they're experiencing diet-related health issues. Yeah, that actually mirrors my experience growing up, Tony, in, in some interesting ways. And we talk about I suppose the intersection of accessibility, food security, food deserts, and privilege. And my mom told me that when I was really young, she had an aim to make as much food of my baby food from scratch as she could. But growing up in the city of Detroit, and even when I go back to our old neighborhood, which was on the far west side of Detroit, it's still in many ways in that immediate area, that neighborhood, a very food insecure part of Detroit. Even to this day, when I go back home and visit once or or twice a year, not now, I don't know when I'm going to get back to make another visit, but driving those old streets, I still look around and it's corner stores and it's liquor stores and it's not throwing them under the bus, but you know, Little Caesars Pizza and Hungry Howie's and sub shops. And there's not a lot of places to find fresh produce. And so I remember my mom telling me stories when I was little that she would make over an hour drive to a suburb called Ann Arbor, Michigan, because they had actually like, I guess, organic food and a little farmer's market there. So once a week, she would go and drive an hour to get this produce to make my baby food. And I mean, that's crazy to think about driving an hour outside of your neighborhood just to find that access to food. It's not that way now, but but there still are a lot of those glaring elements of inequality and food insecurity. If you're in downtown Detroit, as an example, there's a place called Eastern Market, which to my knowledge, I think is one of the oldest consistently running farmer's markets in the US. And Whole Foods finally built a location there, I think about six years ago. But that's just one example of, of a very economically stressed city among many. You know, you think about Baltimore, you think about Pittsburgh, where yeah, food insecurity and people not necessarily even having the means to drive an hour away. I mean, my mom had the blessing of having a vehicle, right, to be able to make that trek. But you think people that are really, really struggling in poverty, they're not necessarily going to be willing to take a bus or take public transportation all that way just to get healthy food. So I think one of the biggest things that I want to figure out is how do we get healthy foods, plant-based foods, organic foods, more accessible and available 
and affordable to the people that really needed to heal their bodies. And I'm not sure that I have an answer yet to that. I'm not sure I'm even anywhere close to an answer. I think the most unfortunate part of that is that it ultimately comes down to the community helping instead of, I'll say the government. I feel like people who are finding solutions are doing it for their own communities and growing food in vacant parking lots or vacant lots or on the space of ground between the street and the sidewalk. And they're just looking for ways to bring healthy food, fresh food into their communities. And I so appreciate that and support that. But I also feel like I wish there were better solutions and that it came from a higher up and people who were experiencing these problems themselves weren't having to find the solutions to take care of themselves and their communities. It's just a lot of weight to bear when you're already stressed about being in a tough financial spot. There's also the other side of it that I think is interesting is there's a lot of shame around eating processed food, especially for anyone who is currently eating vegan and plant-based. And like sometimes I hesitate to use the word plant-based because it's often associated with like a whole foods diet, right? And I know for me, I struggle a lot with this mentality of like being afraid to admit that I eat some processed foods or like I don't want anyone to know if I go, you know, for instance, I went to KFC to try their new Beyond Chicken. And then I was like, I'm not going to post about this on social media because I don't want the like whole food plant-based people to be judging me or like shaming me for my decision to eat that. And I think that mentality is also kind of detrimental because if we put this whole stigma on eating those foods, A, there's people like me who enjoy eating those foods from time to time. Or B, if you put shame around it, what about somebody who either doesn't have access to the fresh produce or doesn't isn't at that point where they want to eat unprocessed foods? And then if you say like, well, that's not good for you and you shame them so much, they're going to feel awful about their food choices when that might be all they know or all they want at this time. And I think from a mental health standpoint, that's really kind of dangerous. There's just so much food shaming that goes on. And especially within the vegan world, too, there's so much judgment about what type of vegan food or plant-based food that you eat. And I know that's caused me a great deal of stress over the years. How about you two? Yes, I will take it a step further and say that there's a lot of shaming in general and that there's a lot of courage behind a keyboard that people are having and they're forgetting the humanity of everyone they're being mean to on the other side of the screen. And it makes me really sad. I remember reading Michelle's YouTube channel. Our mutual friend Michelle Kane has a YouTube channel called World of Vegan and I go comment on her videos and I support it. And I was watching a what I eat in a day video and she had gotten a haircut and I thought it was very nice. But someone said, I wish you wouldn't have gotten a haircut. Now you look like just another basic bitch. And ouch. I know. Usually I just let it go. Like I, people comment mean things to her all the time on her YouTube and I just let it go. But that one, I just couldn't. It just made me so mad. And I wondered, who are you to think you can say that to someone? Does your family know that you speak to people such in such a disrespectful manner? I'm sure they would not be happy 
Perhaps. Or, you know, sometimes it is the result of growing up with family members who speak that way. And we learn so much from the people around us and what's acceptable or not. And it is an ongoing struggle. And for the three of us and many people that we know, our close friends like Michelle and so many other content creators out there, it's really tough. And certainly I'm at a point right now where I don't even create YouTube videos because sometimes I just can't handle the amount of cruel things that people say. And I think about that almost every single day because I'm trying to find a way to still find joy and give myself permission to go on and share things. And like I said, there were times where I'd feel really free about like posting an Instagram story, like look what I'm eating. But at a certain point, you can feel so bullied by other people and judged by them that something as simple as me sharing like that I went to KFC to try the Beyond Meat nuggets, <laughs> I'm like afraid to do stuff like that because there's like the fear of being judged as a whole, whether somebody says something or not to you and or being unfollowed because you don't align with the way of eating that this person has. And it's really tricky. But again, going back to the other side of it, like beyond being content creators, like we are I also think that there is so much like lack of a better word privilege in, in saying those things because food is such a complicated personal and sometimes even political thing. And we have no idea why somebody is making the decision to eat certain foods. And this idea of like everybody should eat the healthiest diet possible, like as if anybody knows what the healthiest diet really is. I think it's incredibly relative to each person. but. This just ongoing judgment. I don't think it actually helps the movement very much. And going back to what you were saying, Tony, about how there's this big challenge in the vegan movement of infighting and and fighting with the insiders and the outsiders. Like we're there's just so much fighting, period, that it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't mentality. And Jason, I'm curious for you to chime in on this too, because I know you struggle with this a lot. Yeah. I mean, I share, I think the general sentiments that the three of us are putting out there that from day one that I was putting out content. And it's interesting because I feel like within the activist community, we're talking pre-social media now, like even before MySpace. I remember talking to mutual friends of mine back in Detroit area where I grew up about a lot of the infighting within the vegan activist community, the sustainable and eco-rights community and, and the overlap there. And I feel like what social media has done is is it's created a a magnifying glass and a microscope to what I think is already going on within people's minds and personalities and hearts and bringing up, I think, some really wonderful contributions to humanity, but also some really painful, dark, unhealed trauma. And I've noticed pretty consistently, this is just anecdotal evidence, and this is certainly not, I'm not throwing every single person who is a vegan or a plant-based activist under the bus, but I've noticed having lived this way and eaten this way for nearly 23 years now that there's a lot of trauma in this community. And I think the trauma from perhaps people's pain, rejection, being physically harmed, I mean, just knowing a lot of people in the vegan movement, any of the unhealed trauma or pain that they haven't worked through gets projected onto others in the form of perfectionism, idealism, having a standard in their mind they're not actually fully living up to, but thinking that if I just try and be this standard and act like this standard, 
then maybe that will get me to a place of healing. I really think subconsciously that's what's going on for a lot of people. But I've been on the receiving end of a lot of really mean, hurtful comments, you know, things that were so off the wall and bizarre that made no sense at all. And to piggyback on Whitney's comment about you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, I think that there a lot of these comments are, like I said, I mean, the only psychological standpoint I can come from is that if a person is in pain and they are hurting and they are really, I don't want to say damaged, but but in a really bad place psychologically, that's the only reason I could see someone making a comment like your haircut makes you look like a basic bitch. Or one of my favorite comments from all, all the years ago when I had my TV series was like, he's got like, his nose is huge. You know, he looks like, what, what did they say? Something about looking like an ogre or some shit. And it was like, okay, yeah. I, like, what does my nose have to do with anything? But I guess what I'm trying to say to both of you is I try, not always successful. I try to have compassion for someone who feels the need to make those comments because there's something not psychologically healthy about that person. Well, I'll say that you are a lot nicer <laughs> than I am. It's That is my goal. What you're saying is my goal, but I've had many privileges in my life and I'm grateful for each and every one of them. And I do a, my daily gratitudes and I try really hard to be a positive person, but my family, the way they communicate is pretty harsh. My dad, he says it all the time that he's a sailor. He was a construction worker in the Navy and a truck driver. My grandfather owned a truck driving company. And the language used among those groups of people is pretty harsh. And so it was very common to just curse and to be a little bit insensitive. And at some point, I had to choose how I wanted to be and how I wanted to communicate with people and to not take on qualities that I didn't appreciate. And I learned a lot of it from going to elementary school where they tell you, oh, you can't talk to people like that. You shouldn't call people stupid. You shouldn't say that word. And I went to a normal public school in a neighborhood where people were, many of them were first and second generation Americans. So it's very diverse, but primarily in Mexican American. And so it could have been from what I've seen from my own family, I could have stayed using the same language as some of my family members. And there is a lot of trauma that has been in my family and in my own life. But I feel at some point we just have to choose to be kind. And sometimes that means looking into a book at the library if you can or renting one to listen to from the library. That's how I got access to a lot of new ideas that were different from my very conservative family. And I just chose a different path. My, some of my family members are very homophobic. Some of my family members are just not the way I personally want to be. And you just have to choose not to be mean. It can be hard, but I believe it can be done. And it makes me have a shorter fuse when people are so mean to each other. And they're mean to me all the time. And for the most part, I just let it roll because it happens so frequently on a daily basis even. But I don't, like you, Jason, have that very kind and generous frame of thought that there could be a really good reason for it. It's interesting because I've seen that ebbs and flows with Jason and with myself. And we're we're the first to admit that we're not always having a balanced perspective on these things. And we each get triggered, wouldn't you say, Jason? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I don't want to paint a false picture, Tony. I'm nowhere near sainthood. <laughs> nowhere near it. But 
I think I just have to remind myself that for a person to, and my goodness, is this a practice right now during COVID with all of the political rhetoric and conspiracy theories and medical information and conflicting medical information? It's almost every day that I will open Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And without hunting for it, you know, it's not like I'm looking for conflict. Friends and acquaintances feeds will pop up and I don't even know, you know, 70, 80% of the time, it seems that there's some shouting match or diatribe or conflict happening in the comment section. And I have to get to what I'm trying to do is trying to come at this from a not only a psychological perspective, but a perspective of ego and trauma and what people really want. And I think that a lot of people are feeling scared and disempowered and confused and like they don't have control right now. And I think it's a pretty natural reaction to life when a person believes that they're out of control, confused, and scared to try and assume some sort of control and certainty in their lives. So when I see people bashing each other of like, oh, you're pro-Trump, you're Antifa, no, you're way too liberal and the Democrats are ruining that. I mean, it's more of this binary thinking that we kind of see in the food and nutrition world, right? It's like, oh, the vegans are assholes. No, the paleo people are assholes. No, you should be keto. No, you should be 80-10-10. I mean, it goes back to me to a psychological foundation of people trying to have some sort of control and certainty. I've found the way. This is the way to be political. This is the way to worship. This is the way to eat. I am right. You're wrong. I have found the Holy Grail. Anyone who denies the Holy Grail is an idiot, and I'm going to tell you why. It's a lot of ego, but underneath the ego, I think is a lot of fear. And I don't think that people would necessarily admit to that, but that's my take on it, is people are really afraid right now. And by lashing out and engaging in conflict and trying to make themselves feel right, that's a way for them to somehow compartmentalize the chaos that's happening in the world. I understand what you're saying. And when I think about it in that way, I very much agree with you. And what I'm more talking about is when people have petty, really mean, spirited comments like, on my first book, I wore red lipstick on my author photo. And in one of the reviews, someone said they were so distracted by me looking like a prostitute that they couldn't even get the book because it just was too wow. much for them. Oh my God. Those kinds of comments are so common. And I know other, especially female authors who have experienced the same superficial comments that my male friends who are authors have not experienced like what they were wearing in their author photos or how they did their hair or what they chose to wear as makeup. And it's just those types of comments that I have little to no tolerance for. But what you're saying, I do understand. And I've taken an approach in life that is more I understand that the world is not black and white, and it has taken me a really long time to get there. When I was first stepping into activism, especially in the vegan space, I thought meat is murder. We need to all stop this now, immediately. If you don't, I hate you. It was very much black and white. And over time, I've really begun to understand the real-life obstacles I was mentioning earlier that people face. Their partners aren't plant-based. Their children have specific health needs or food needs and financial stress. And there's just so many obstacles that I understand how it can be overwhelming. And same goes with a lot of other really important matters. Some people 
haven't had exposure to different information and they feel so passionately. And as I mentioned, I grew up in a pretty conservative household and I didn't have a lot of friends who thought differently. And I hung out with my family all the time and believed for most of my teenage years until I actually found punk rock music that I just saw things in a certain way that I was brought up to think. And it wasn't until I left my family's house and got more exposure to new people and to new ideas that helped me shape the person I am today. And I think that that's mostly having an open mind, understanding that there could be reasons people believe what they believe and that deep down inside they could be good people instead of seeing the worst in everybody. And then other thing I wanted to mention is that for me, and I've learned this through being involved in the vegan space online, you don't often win hearts and minds through being mean to them on the internet. What I've seen work in all different passions of my life is that through being a kind ambassador for whatever you're trying to put out there, and over a very long period of time, and over many respectful conversations, that's when change is made. It's not made by calling someone out online and telling them they're a terrible person. That's my experience. For sure. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And in a way, I feel grateful to have experienced these things and know other people that have because I think my kind of coping mechanism is to step back and reflect on like, okay, why am I triggered by this? Why do I feel this way? And then going back to Jason was saying, it's like, well, what could that person have experienced that led them to say those things? And then also recognizing that there's no way for me to know. And <laughs> it reminds me too of there, I've tried to approach it from so many different angles, as I'm sure the two of you have. There's like, okay, I'm just going to let it go and let it roll off my back. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I'm not somebody that I don't even know if I'm fully capable of doing that, whether it's my personality or whether it's my own wounds. Things just don't roll off my back very easily. And I've tried. I've tried to like become that type of person and, and create that armor, as they say, in a thicker skin. And it's like, well, I either haven't figured it out yet or I'm never going to. And that's OK. And being an acceptance of this may never be easy for me. And then I also like to reflect on what it brings up for me because then I can learn something out of it and at least it wasn't wasted. <laughs> the challenging part is that when it gets in your way, when it kind of stops you and prevents you and that, and that's where I've been recently is I start to get so in my head about it and this is where like the inner critic comes in is like sometimes we are triggered by these things because we actually believe them on some level or like we had some sort of emotional or a different form of trauma when we are growing up. So these things can feel really hard and hurtful. And I guess for me, going back to that coping mechanism, it's like, well, the best I can do is work on myself. And like, I don't want to reflect back any anger to somebody else because I don't know why they said those things to me. And I'm not going to be able to change them. I can't like coming back to this like vegan thing. Like I think a lot of vegans are judgmental because like it's a coming from a place of deep concern or anger. When you learn the realities of how animals are treated, it's hard not to get angry about it. And it's tempting to want to change everybody and convince anyone. And it's the same with health as well. I mean, during COVID, 
how many people are arguing about whether or not to wear a mask, you know, and it's like some people see it as a very black or white situation. They have a very good reason for wearing a mask or not wearing it. Right. But it creates a debate because people are coming at it from all these different perspectives. And you see how triggered we can get from these scenarios. And each of those are opportunities for me to notice my own reactions. And as you were saying, Tony, like it's a choice how we react. And yet it's not always an easy choice because when we are feeling emotionally charged, it can make it really hard to control ourselves. I want to go back to you really quickly for both of you, Tony and Whitney. There's a couple things that I want to touch back on. And Tony, you mentioned that you don't observe male content creators in our space having nearly the same kind of vitriol and hateful comments regarding our appearance. And I have to 100% agree with that. I'm curious for both of you, because off the record, having been best friends with Whitney for so long, I know that Whitney's also had some comments over the years. I'm curious when both of you receive really kind of specific about your appearance, how you look, your weight, et cetera. How do you emotionally process those comments and not allow them to consume you or not allow yourself to believe that those things are true about yourself? Or if you do start believing that they're true, how do you, proverbially speaking, talk yourself off the ledge and not let that stuff get in your head? Well, I have a lot of experience now receiving that kind of negative comment, and some of it bothers me more than others. But what I have decided to focus on is things I can control. People hate my voice, and I hear it all the time. They tell me about my podcast. uh, They tell me in my videos, I hate your voice. I can't listen to it. It's just too much. Even on Michelle's videos I'm in, some people comment on that. And those things actually really did hurt my feelings at first. And I thought, should I get voice training? Should I do this? And I was talking to my husband, but boyfriend at the time. And I thought, all these people are saying this. Should I try to change my voice? And fortunately, I have a strong support system that I rely on. And they, both he and Michelle were like, no, these people, like, they don't know what they're talking about. Just do you. You're doing a fantastic job in life. You don't need to worry about your voice. And so I think that that's really important, surrounding yourself with people who will lift you up. And then there's some others that are really superficial that I I don't think that any male content creators would have to deal with. Like, I wore shorts in a video that I was in, and the video, I was walking into a restaurant, and then people started commenting on my butt. And fortunately, the person who was running the channel just deleted all of them, and I appreciated that. But those are just annoying. I don't like that. But I didn't feel like I should never wear shorts again. I probably would have said something to them. I don't know what, but it is in my nature to correct that behavior, just to be like, hey, that's not cool or something like that. But I wish it it was not something I had to do. So there are different levels of things that hurt and don't hurt. My hands are another thing that people have commented on about Um, when I'm doing food videos, that my hands are very unappetizing. (laughs) And that just made me mad. So there are different things. Hurt, mad, should I actually change this? And through all of it, having people like my husband and Michelle and my parents who I can talk these things through with and who lift me up when I'm 
starting to feel blue has been really important in my journey. Yeah, it's tough for me to say because I don't know if I found, aside from what I mentioned earlier, like I think my current coping mechanism is to step back and examine it. And sometimes that leads me to a place of not wanting to continue doing what I was doing. I get most triggered by YouTube because I think YouTube in general has such a culture of commenting on other people. And it makes me really sad. The more time I spend off of YouTube, the more I think, do I even really want to be on that platform anymore? I think I felt like I had to be there because I had developed such a community in that space. And so much of content has been based on YouTube. Luckily, now it seems to be shifting a lot. Instagram is another big place. And I I don't think that people are necessarily as cruel in my experience on Instagram with the work that I'm doing. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I follow a lot of body positivity accounts and they often post about the cruel comments that they receive. So I know it's happening. It's really sad. So I guess it's like stepping back to reflect on it. And then it's also really important for us, as as Tony's saying, to like step outside of our own worlds and viewpoints because it's very easy as content creators to become so limited in our thinking in some ways. Like, you know, YouTube was just such a huge part of my life. And now that it's becoming less and less a part of my life, I'm slowly like looking outside of YouTube, if that makes sense, where it's not like this be all end all platform where I was so consumed with all the time. And I felt like so much of my career was centered around YouTube. Recently, I'm thinking it's not really about YouTube and it never has been. That's just been a way, a medium in which for me to reach people. But like, I'll be okay if I don't create videos on YouTube anymore, you know? And the same thing is true with Instagram. I think so many people get fixated on these platforms. And now I'm seeing this on TikTok where I really enjoy TikTok, but I'm also in a place in this very moment where I haven't created very much in the past month or so. I've barely done anything on Instagram. So there's like a lot of platforms where I'm kind of still trying to figure out what I want to do in a way that feels good to me, not in a way where I feel like I'm constantly setting myself up for feeling like my wounds to be picked upon. And that I think like if we look at it from a physical standpoint, like as a metaphor, if you like broke your leg, you can't rush your leg to heal. You have to give it time to heal. You have to take a break from walking on it. And sometimes we want to get back and run again. Maybe we are a runner and our whole identity is centered around running. But if you hurt yourself, it's in your best interest to step away and allow yourself to heal and then decide what your relationship is to running again. And I guess I'm in that place right now where I want to get stronger. I want to feel confident. I want to feel find joy in these things. I don't want to continue putting myself in a place where I'll feel wounded again and again and again. I think that's actually, it's almost like an abusive system in a lot of these ways. And I feel that way a lot about social media. There's a lot of elements of social media that just not, aren't good for our mental health. And we have to be really mindful of how we interact with them because unfortunately, we can't control what people say about us. And it's really frustrating and sad. And, you know, it's not just about social media. Tony, as you mentioned, you're experiencing this like on probably Amazon, you know, and it's like, why do these people feel like it's okay to, to leave these horrible comments and reviews? But unfortunately, this is a big issue that we can't just solve on our own as individuals. The only thing that we can really do is 
evaluate our relationship with these platforms. And as Tony mentioned, like put our focus and our emphasis, our priority on the people that we know and we trust and we feel emotionally safe with, whether that's a romantic partner, a good friend, a family member. Those are the people that matter most, not all of these strangers on the internet that we have zero control over and we don't really understand. Whitney, the stuff you're saying makes me really sad. It makes me sad because you do such good in the world and because people feel free to be negative and to tear you down. And it is you, but it's also other content creators I know who are doing a really wonderful service of providing free content on the internet, better people's lives. And it just, it breaks my heart to hear the wounds you've experienced and how you feel and that you are taking a break to heal. And I hope that anyone listening to this will consider how what they're saying to someone online will impact them and also impact the world because I feel like the world is worse off when you're not creating content. Well, that's very sweet on a personal level, and I appreciate that. And I feel the same way about others. And it makes me think, like, who else out there is experiencing what I'm experiencing and who else hasn't found how they can interact in the world in a safe way? And you see this, too, on social media where people start operating out of a place of that armor. And it's like they're putting on a mask to try to prove their worthiness or prove that they're strong. And like, I'm not going to let the haters get me down. But what I see, and maybe this is just because I have this perspective on life, but a lot of times I see that that's actually a cry for help and that they're trying to convince themselves that it doesn't hurt. And there's a big mentality in life in different cultures, especially in American cultures. It's like, you got to be tough and you can't let the haters get you down. And like, What about the emotional side of it? I mean, recently there's been a lot coming out about the importance of not stigmatizing mental health. And I think we're very fortunate that it's becoming more of a topic that people are discussing. They're opening up about their hardships and their anxiety and depression and all of the different bullying, you know. And now we have so much awareness around how other people are being treated. And yet we still have such a long way to go. I think right now racism is being put in our face and many of us are having to acknowledge ways in which either we've been racist or we've not been anti-racist, right? And that's something I've had to examine. And so I think we just continuously have to do this work and realize, as you're saying, Tony, that we have to take responsibility for our actions and how they affect other people because they do have a ripple effect. And maybe somebody thinks that they can comment about your lipstick and just move on with their life. But like that comment could sit with you for years. And who knows, like maybe every time you put on lipstick now, you're thinking about that comment. I've certainly had comments like that where they just are always there in the back of my mind. Like, I don't want somebody to say these things to me again. So let me not do that thing. And then suddenly you have like this long list of things not to do or things not to say. And then you end up in a position feeling like, well, what can I say and what can I do? And it becomes incredibly challenging to operate when you're so afraid of all those type of mean things because it's a self-protection thing. You just don't want to get hurt. And I think a lot of people are moving around the world 
trying not to get hurt. And that limits our ability to deeply connect with one another and share our true selves. I think in some ways I have talked to people and also in my own mind made this parallel between high school and social media. And I feel like a lot of the dynamics in terms of how people communicate and the hierarchy and the fact that we have followers and comments and metrics and all of these things, that social media on a level of psychology and physiology works well because we've been trained, not all of us, but anybody who's had like a typical, I guess, educational experience in middle school or high school can relate to a lot of the bullying, the mean comments, the hierarchies, the popular kids, and the metrics in which popularity or success were measured. And it's interesting for me to kind of look at the micro of, say, relationships and comments and these very painful things on social media, but see that there was already, in some cases, an archetype in place for this type of social interaction. And from an anthropological perspective, I think about that sometimes of like, how much were we actually trained to already have this sort of structure present in our lives? Like, to me, I often feel that social media is it's just a glorified high school popularity contest all over again. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think I having dug into this a lot, because I too am very fascinated by that, Jason. And it's actually something that's been going on throughout human history, you know, for better or for worse. Like it's part of our survival to have tribal mentalities and to exclude people and to judge people on things. I mean, even judging somebody based on how they look is a survival mechanism. It's like, you don't look like me, so I don't know if I can trust you. You don't act like me, so I don't know if I agree with you. Or, or something that you're doing is challenging my viewpoint, and that makes me feel insecure. And when I feel insecure, I don't feel safe. And so it's just like, a lot of this is really basic. And some of it is also programming. And what was the word that you used? Training, Jason? Yeah, it just, it feels like there are societal tropes or structures or ways of conditioning that I just see transposed onto social media that that have already been within us. I, I mean, I think it was really the bullying comment and the negativity and the tendency to have certain people try and pick you apart for innocuous things that make no sense. You know, we talk about lipstick or your butt or your hair or your nose or a lot of the things we brought up. I, it's like the tyranny of the majority. It's like, oh, I, I'm in the powerful group and I have the privilege and the power. And it's almost like I can say these things and do these things to you. And I have the privilege of not caring how it's going to affect your life. Like there are no consequences. Exactly. Because those particular people are used to having no consequences for their actions. As someone who feels very deeply, it also hurts me to see those comments, not only on my friends like Michelle's pages, but even when I'm skimming through my Instagram feed or Facebook in those types of conversations that you mentioned, Jason, that are more political, it really sits with me when I read people's messages who are just straight up mean-spirited. And I feel like the connection that you're making, Whitney, between mental health and social media is so real. And there are times when I need to just get off of social media, which is hard as a content creator because if this is your job and you take a break, 
the algorithm is unforgiving and it can really mess up how your content is seen. If you're gone for a month or even a week, it can make it so that your content isn't seen as frequently as if you're posting often. And I've had some time this year where I just felt really uninspired and I'm fortunate at Plant Based on a Budget to have some help. I have someone named Alfonso and someone named Bea who I just can't imagine being without and they really are able to pick up the slack, but there are still things I need to do, which makes it so that I'm reading those, even though I feel like my emotional and mental capacity is full. So how do you guys deal with that? Because that's something I really struggle with when I'm just really overloaded with feelings and I still can't, I don't have a lot of space to take time off from my job. Right. It's so true. And I think that I've been gradually pivoting into not being dependent on social media in that direct way. Now, granted, there are so many offshoots of our work that we can pivot to. So for me, I've been doing social media consulting and teaching. I love doing that. I love supporting others with that. And that way, I'm not as dependent on like, working with a sponsor or selling my products or services. And that gives me a lot of freedom or developing something that may have a different path. Like right now, I've really been loving Pinterest. And Pinterest is a phenomenal way to bring traffic to your website. And if you have a product or service, it's great for that. I've been sponsored on Pinterest before. And that feels like a really kind, peaceful community, right? So it was like, okay, can I pivot into a place online that feels better, that feels uh, more authentic to me or feels kinder or I feel more empowered? And then the other thing that I've been doing, Tony, similar to what you were talking about and then I mentioned as well is like really nourishing my relationships with people that I know are supportive of me. And I think Social media, in a way, over the years, for each of us, we've experienced this. It's been so numbers based and so much about how many people follow you or comment or like or share and all those different things. And the more that I've studied social media, I realize that a lot of that is set in place to benefit the social media platform. It's not necessarily to benefit us. And it gives me chills talking about it because I've seen people do some really drastic things in order to grow their numbers. And it comes out of this place, as you were saying, Tony, of like your numbers can equate to making more money and feeling more financially stable and successful and all of these things that matter to us. I mean, at the end of the day, like money is important to us because that's what we use to buy food and pay for our shelter and those basic things that we need. And then many people use money to validate themselves through their purchases and getting getting a nice car or a nice house or nice watch, nice clothing. And then they're rewarded on social media for showing those things. Then the cycle just continues. And if you don't really pay attention to it, I think that can be incredibly damaging to your mental health. And that subject matter comes up a lot on this podcast. So for me, just paying attention to that and noticing how I felt and then looking for ways that I can kind of step outside of that system and not feel so controlled by it. And again, tuning back into the people that I know care. So actually right now I'm working on a new program of mine inspired by this very subject matter 
It's called Beyond Measure. And the inspiration for my program is based on the fact that our self-worth and compassion and all the things about us is benefited more by less focus on the external, more focus on the internal and really like seeing ourselves for who we really are and not how we think other people perceive us. And so many people are struggling with self-esteem, even if they're not basing their careers on social media, but like lots of people that are on Facebook, just using it on a personal level, like they're affected. They fall into the comparison trap. They can be bullied. They can end up, as Jason was saying, in these arguments online about their different perspectives. So it's a huge issue right now. And as I've been developing Beyond Measure, I found a lot of peace through it because I started by connecting with the people in my community that I feel emotionally safe with and that I know appreciate me for who I am and not for any of those external things. And it's been a beautiful practice because instead of trying to make it about my numbers, like, hey, how can I construct the perfect Instagram post that gets me this amount of likes and that this amount of likes is going to convert to this amount of clicks and doing all of that numbers-based math, which I find just truly exhausting and depleting. But doing the outreach to individual people and connecting with them is so much more rewarding. And it's similar to this idea that many of us know as entrepreneurs, or just if you're creating online at all, you've probably heard of the Kevin Kelly's philosophy of a thousand true fans. It really only takes a small group of a thousand people for you to find some financial stability and find some success. And yet, if you look at that number 1,000 on social media, that's like considered nothing. That's all you have. Those are only a thousand people follow you. Like, how could you possibly make money off of that? But I think it's because we don't value those a thousand people. We don't even value a hundred people. But if you had a hundred people in a room, that's a lot of people. So I think social media has skewed us so much where we stop thinking about the individuals and we look at the mass and we become obsessed with these numbers. And so I guess the long answer is my way of handling this these days is to pay more attention to the individuals and be grateful for them and feel connected to them, which also, as a result, puts me less in those situations where I'm interacting with cruel people because I know that those people don't even want to be part of those deeper connections with me, at least not at this point. I think my approach has been re-landscaping my priorities in life to a really large degree, which I'm still in the process of. And in the last six to seven years, I've experienced some pretty challenging health issues in terms of really prioritizing too much content creation, doing a TV series, writing cookbooks, output, 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 at the expense of minding not only my physical health in some regards, but definitely my mental health. And for me, it's been acknowledging the ruthlessness of the algorithm that the machine just wants to get fed, whether that's me or Tony, Whitney, or the listener, if you're involved in the machine just wants to be fed. And the machine makes money off of what we put into it. And I just got to a point where if I wasn't taking really good care of my mind and my body and not getting into that state of burnout. And burnout is a really hard place to be in. It's a hard place. 
and to me dealing with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation, a lot of the other layers of my mental health, I realized that I was ignoring my own needs to feed the machine. Got to put out a YouTube video four times a week. Got to make this TV series happen. Got to write this book. You know, just I don't know that any human being is necessarily built for that kind of output over a long period of time without really nourishing themselves. And so when I say it was a priority shift that I'm still going through, it's that I know that if I'm not okay mentally and physically, and I'm not giving myself downtime and time to rest and time to get off of social media, I will burn myself out at some point. And then whatever money or sponsorships or opportunity or fame or popularity comes from it, I can't enjoy it or leverage it as a tool if I'm laying in bed just burnt to a crisp like an old piece of toast. So it's just been a reprioritization for me of taking really good care of myself and not ignoring those things that need to be dealt with. And if the algorithm, pardon my French, gets fucked for a little while, then so be it. That's a trade-off I'm willing to make. I understand where you're coming from. The part that I struggle with is that at some point I got a team and it no longer became only about me, but also I think about what's going to happen if I take a break to the people who depend on the financial stability of, unfortunately, what comes from those numbers or the algorithm. And it just leaves me in a really hard space. And there have been times this year where I just said, okay, everybody take the week off and we're just going to, I'll take it on myself so that I make sure that they're also taken care of. But it's like, it's a lot of extra pressure when it's no longer only you and you worry about the people you care deeply about and their families who rely on them to bring home the income. Yeah. I mean, imagine that's what it's like to be a parent, you know, when your life is no longer just about you. And I, I've been there too. I mean, both Jason and I have, have had teams. And at this point, the two of us are a team together. And I suppose there's a little bit of that dynamic there at play with us with this podcast. You know, like if one of us doesn't feel like recording, we have to do it anyways because we've committed to it. <laughs> you know, we have to be consistent with the podcast. But luckily, the podcast brings us so much joy and it has felt like a very peaceful process. We've received like one negative review on iTunes, you know, and it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so we're blessed with that so far, but that doesn't mean we're not going to face that negativity in the future. And I certainly have felt that way too, Tony, when I was working with an amazing assistant. And um, I think how I looked at it is it's like, okay, she's here because I need her support. So how can I use that support to focus on what I need? Like we were talking to a guest recently who's saying like, if you're feeling tense about something, that's a great opportunity to delegate it. So can you delegate something that you don't want to do that doesn't bring you joy, that isn't your skill set? And when you delegate it, is that going to result in the income that you want or whatever whatever else you need at that time. And so I kind of going back to what Jason's saying is like stripping away the unnecessary. Like how much of this do we actually need to do or how much of this is what we've been led to believe that we need to do? Because I've actually found that even though I've stepped away a lot from some of these social media platforms, it actually hasn't had as big of a impact on my career or income as I thought. Part of that is because, as I said, like that ability to pivot, like say, this doesn't feel good. How can I pivot this into something else? 
And the more I've kind of stepped away from being so dependent on the numbers, I've realized that the numbers really didn't give me that much. And I was chasing them for so long, but at what cost? And so you're paying, you know, Jason taught me this phrase, you pay with your purse or you pay with your person. Like, is it worth making all this money and supporting a team if your mental health is like not doing well? Like Jason's saying, being burnt to a crisp, like I'd rather minimize it. And I know it's not always that simple, but I guess it's that ongoing process. And for you, Tony, or anyone listening, it's like just that constant evaluation. Like, does this feel good? And is this serving me in the way that I need to? And maybe right now I can't make that decision to jump ship, but maybe in six months I can. And maybe we can start making that pivot and however long it takes, but eventually I'll get there. I think at least knowing that something is in sight can be helpful while also continuing to support the people that are relying on you. That's good advice. I feel like, well, I know for the most part, I really love what I do. I love social media. I've had the pleasure of working for animals and to support the vegan cause and movement and community for my whole career, which is, I feel really privileged to be able to say that. So I am more happy than I am sad. I just hope that anyone listening or anyone I know will always just be really considerate of how they communicate with people and Instagram pages or Amazon reviews. And just you can be constructive. I don't mind constructive feedback. It's just the delivery is what's really important. And to not feel so entitled that everything has to be catered around your specific needs, whether to tie into what you were saying, Whitney, about how you were afraid to post the chicken nuggets from KFC. Not everything Whitney creates is going to be tailored specifically to you. And if you don't like what she's posting, just keep scrolling. You don't have to take the time out to tell her that she's eating terribly and she's a bad person and all of that. It's just, I'm hoping that a lot of our stress can be relieved by other people just being compassionate and spreading compassion has, for me, always been a pretty positive thing. I build better connections. I make people better friends. And through that, have just been a happier person in general. And so that's more of my concern is when I deal with stress, it's often because I get down by how often I'm criticized on the internet. For sure. And I love what you're saying about compassion too, because I think that's the big message here. And, you know, even coming back to the beginning of the conversation about food, it's like each of us have different relationships with food and money. And it's wonderful to learn not only new ways to save money and eat really well, but having compassion for what somebody else is going through and trying not to judge them so much. I think. It's very tempting when you learn a way of eating that you think works for you. You know, when you go vegan and you decide to stop eating animals, it, some of us find that very simple. For me, I literally went vegetarian overnight, it took me a little bit longer to transition to veganism, but it felt really easy. And when I started a career centered around veganism, I've met a lot of different people over the years, as I know Jason and Tony have as well. And Everybody has a different relationship. Sometimes it's not as simple as transitioning from dairy-based cheese to plant-based cheese. Like some people really don't like plant-based cheese. <laughs> and it's easy for us to say, 
oh my God, this tastes amazing. It's such a simple swap. But like, it's not always that easy. And then there's that whole factor of the money. Like, actually, somebody said this to me recently. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this costs so much. What was it? I feel like it might have been a vegan cheese. Like, they were just talking about how much it costs. And I was like, oh, like, that's pretty reasonable. And they're like, you just think that because you're used to seeing that price point because you've been vegan for so long. And I think the same thing is true with organic. Like, I've been eating an organic diet and also a bit of the lifestyle for a long time. And so I'm used to seeing organic prices. But for some people, like, seeing, raspberries for $2.99 and organic raspberries for $4.99, that's a huge jump for them. And they're not used to that price point. Or maybe they simply do not have that extra money to justify it. And I think that having that compassion for all the different ways that people eat and their relationships with money and their access to certain things like is such an important thing too. And I think a lot of these comments come down to simply recognizing that people are different than us and that's okay. I keep thinking about that comment you received about your lipstick, Tony, and like, I guess trying to understand like, why did that person say that to you? But maybe they have been shamed about that and they're just projecting their own shame about red lipstick onto you and they have been raised or treated a certain way or maybe like they're super sensitive to anything that that looks like it might be sexual or whatever, you know, like who knows what's going on for them. And they just don't know how else to communicate those things. But hopefully, you know, other people can learn to step back and say, like, you know what? It's okay that she's choosing to wear that red lipstick or maybe not even notice it. And I think the more that we can practice having compassion and not knowing why other people are making decisions or trying to pressure them to change or see life through our viewpoint, that to me is my big hope for the world and something I would really love to see. And I think this conversation is reminding me of or giving me inspiration for spreading that message more because each of us being vegan, like compassion seems to be at the core, but we've certainly seen a lot of vegans not be compassionate to one another. They're so compassionate towards animals and the planet, but we have to remember to be compassionate to other human beings and know that everybody is at a different path with their journey for a lot of different reasons that we just might not understand. Yeah, I think it's important, Whitney, to like reflecting the compassionate angle back of what we're discussing is I've had a lot of comments in my life since I've been choosing this lifestyle of people who are not vegan saying some version to me of like, wow, you know, like when I found out you were vegan, I thought you were going to be an asshole. <laughs> and it was like, wow, like that's a mentality that has been inculcated in certain people of our society that they somehow associate veganism with being an asshole. I know that that sticks in my mind, in my subconscious and my conscious mind a lot of how can I hopefully, there's no guarantee, but create a different association for this person? You know, how can I show up with acceptance and compassion and being non-judgmental and just being a kind human being who also happens to have chosen a vegan lifestyle and maybe rewrite that narrative? Because it's been shocking to me how much I've received a version of that comment in my life. And it's like, wow, it's no wonder there's so much negativity from non-vegans toward vegans and then so much negativity within the vegan community. But I think my point is I want to bring more compassion and understanding and, I don't know, equanimity into the movement because I certainly don't want that archetype or that assumption of if you're vegan, you're an asshole to continue. I think it's kind of sad, actually. It's funny that you bring that up because right now my whole life is kind of revolving around this project that Michelle and I are working on. 
and its new book. It's called The Friendly Vegan Cookbook, and it's one that we kind of wished we had when we were very angry vegans. And the whole premise is about how it's okay to be friendly. It's actually preferred to be friendly, and you can keep the same friends, you can keep the same family, of course, keep the same family, but like still embrace and love your family and and still share vegan food with them. And I don't know where this, I guess, connection between being more militant and veganism became popular. I'm sure it's just been, I remember being part of the PETA's college campus team, and that was kind of the approach. But after years and years and years of doing this type of work, I've just realized that being friendly is the way to go. And I love that you two model that as well. It, it makes me really happy to know you guys. Well, we're really grateful to know you too. And I was actually trying to remember the first time I met you, Tony. Do you remember when that was? Probably at an extra I know, west. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, know I, I think that was the last time I saw you. Oh, 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 oh. I had a very vivid memory of you that recently. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't even talk about this yet. In 2011? When I was living in San Francisco. You spoke at Berkeley Vegan Earth Day. Uh-huh. And I think that was my first introduction to you. That makes sense. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That was a really lovely event, actually. And I have fond memories of that and my time up north. Time flies, too. Whew, I can't believe 2011. Yeah. It has been a journey for each of us. And it's so lovely to be connected with people after all of these years. I mean, it's crazy to think that that's almost... 10 years ago and how much shifts. And I think that the one of the best parts of being a content creator is all these amazing people that I meet and that we meet. And that's a huge source of joy for me with this podcast and just having people like you on the show, Tony, to talk so openly and vulnerably about these things. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you opened up your heart and shared your experiences and we covered a lot of ground and there's so much more to cover. And I wish we were doing it in person, but someday we will do that again. And so I just want to extend my gratitude for the work that you're doing. I, I was checking out your book with Michelle and that looks amazing. That comes out in October. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Wow. It looks, I love the cover. It made me feel happy just looking at it. <laughs> Thank you. I can't wait. Maybe we'll have both of you on the show to talk about it when that comes out because October will be here before we know it. We'd love that. Michelle, especially, she's the one who introduced me to your podcast and she was like, you have to listen to it. And so then I got hooked and we really appreciate the style that you have, how it's conversational and friendly and how you can, as someone who hasn't hung out with you a lot, I have a sense of your personality. And I think that that's so cool for the people listening to this podcast to just hear you being yourselves. And it's not an interview and it's not you're here to talk about XYZ, but it's just you guys being yourselves. And that's really cool. That means a lot, Tony, to receive that and appreciate you again, lending your presence and, you know, getting so vulnerable and open with us and all the subject matter we discussed today. And um, for you, dear listener, if it is your first time knowing about Tony's work, we are going to link to her website 
all of her amazing books, Plant Based on a Budget, her podcast, all the goodness. And Tony, is is there a link right now to be able to pre-order your book? Can people do that right now? Yes. I already put it in the show Perfection. notes. Yay. Perfection. <laughs> One step ahead. That's why we're a good yep. team. One step ahead. Actually, I'm curious, Tony, because I tried to find it. We've been trying to like do less on Amazon just as a option for people that don't want to support Amazon. And I didn't find your book on the site that we've been using. The affiliate program that we're part of is called Indigo Books. It's a Canadian company. I didn't see your books on there. So are there other platforms that your books are on? Do you have a preference, like one that you love to promote more or is Amazon the main for you? We have friendlyvegancookbook.com and that is where people can find all of the places they can purchase our books. Michelle designed this and Indigo is on there. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll have to go take another look. It didn't show up. And IndieBound and Bookshop and Barnes and & Noble. And so there are a few options. Great. In case somebody does not like Amazon. Amazing. Well, dear listener, thank you for being with us again on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Tony, I don't know if you felt uncomfortable at any point today. It's never our intention to force people to feel uncomfortable, but I feel like the vulnerability and the depth was just really, really special today. And I appreciate you going to those places with us. Thanks for having me. And I feel like it's really good to talk about this. It's not something that's exposed often in our community. And it's so overlooked. And as people can hear, it causes a lot of pain. So to really dig deeper and to process those feelings with you has been meaningful to me. So thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.